is the One Action Hub podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of the One Ocean Hub podcast. My name is Milica Prokic and in this episode we will be talking about gender in the ocean and the often overlooked yet essential role uh, of women in the relationship of the ocean and the humankind. And we're going to talk about it in South African context in particular, but I think um, today's conversation is going to talk uh, to gender equality or more often inequality, livelihoods, inclusivity and other issues that are crucial in the ocean context globally. Uh, because today I have an enormous honor and pleasure to speak to two fantastic women academics and activists, Apiwe Moshani and Buchlia Frances. Hello, Apiwe. Hi, Melissa, and hi to all the listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And hello, Buchlia Frances. Hello, Melissa. Hi, how are you? How is Stratclass this morning? It's such an absolute pleasure to have you, and uh, I need to uh, congratulate you once again on recently uh, defending your PhD thesis. So uh, many congratulations, Dr. Buchle Francis. Thank you so much. I think everyone I, who has been with me has been part of my celebration. So I really appreciate it. And it was such a great pleasure to be with you guys at Stratclyde while I was doing the last push. And thank you so much for the space you created and enabled for me, yeah. Before I delve into asking the many questions that we have for you, because I am a great fan of your research for one, and I'm not alone, so I think lots of people are going to be here to hear more about it. But I just wanted to introduce you a little bit to our broader audience. Um, so I'm going to kick off with the newly minted Dr. Buchle Francis. Buchle is a social sciences scholar and an activist based in South Africa at the Rhodes University Environmental Learning Research Center, and she's also a researcher at the One Ocean Hub. Um, Buchle has different vision for what academic research can do both for academia and for those who are studied. Uh, she works with women in small-scale fishing communities in the Eastern Cape, and she's undertaking pioneering collaborative uh, research at the nexus of environmental justice, gender, equality, ocean livelihoods, and inclusivity in ocean-related decision-making. She also teaches climate change in the Master of Disaster Management program, love the title of this program, um, at the Institute of Develop Development Studies at the National University of Sciences and Technology in Zimbabwe. Buchle, you recently returned from Scotland, where you spent some time with us um, as uh, one of the Earth Scholars in Residency through the Scottish Graduate School of Arts and Humanities. Um, and we were so very lucky to have you here with us at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. And then we have Apiwe Moshani, who is an early career ocean and coast governance researcher at the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science at the University of Cape Town. Um, Apiu is also a researcher at the One Ocean Hub as well, of course. Um, her work contributes both to academic debates and civil society regarding oceanic and coastal conflicts that are exacerbated by extractive oceanic industries that infringe upon the human rights uh, of ocean-dependent communities in South Africa. Apiu is currently doing a PhD where she conducts deeper exploration of coastal and oceanic conflicts uh, in the context of blue economy in South Africa in the northern KwaZulu-Natal coastline. More recently, Apiwe has embarked on a research traineeship at the United Nations Institute for Training and Research, or UNITA, 
where she supports, design and oversights the Ocean uh, Knowledge Translation Platform, the One Ocean Learn. Um, it is a project co-developed with the One Ocean Hub and I have a great pleasure to co-work with Apiwe on this. And in the latest very exciting news, Apiwe also won the Earth Scholarship and will be joining us over at Strathclyde in April. Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited to talk about uh, both of your uh, work today. And um, as I said, I'm a great fan. Um, but I just want to stay for a little minute on the topic that we opened just before I hit the record button um, about the issues arising not only around women and ocean governance on the ground, so issues of livelihoods or labor uh, inequality, uh, but also you both spoke so beautifully about women who research within ocean governance, about you and your peers and the challenges that you face. So if you could kick off this conversation by telling us whatever is weighing on your soul at the moment. Just our wake, um, like as women in the space and only not only as women, in my case, for example, as a mother, you know, and the responsibilities that come with this work and all in like around to bring the class rest kind of issue. So I think as researchers also in the hub, we are quite few black uh, researchers, I should say. I don't know what you, you feel appear, even if when you look at the hub overall. So it's just that space, space that a few of us, we find ourselves in, which is very amazing and yeah. yeah. It's so important uh, to highlight um, intersectionality within gender, as, as you've done, right? Uh, particularly mm -hmm. because of our identities, not only as women, but as Black African women in the academic environment, um, this particular environment in, uh, specifically. So I think um, uh, it would be unfortunate if we don't speak candidly, uh, perhaps about what it means to, I mean, it, it, it is a, a sacrifice to be, you, ha you have to sacrifice a few things to be a, a black woman in the academic space, right? That's a known, that's a known <laughs> fact. <Yeah. laughs> um, because, you know, the, the environment that you're coming in very much, um, academia has been synonymous with instability for a long time uh, as far as career goes. So, uh, I mean, I've had a conversation with many researchers within the hub as well about how unstable it is to be uh, an academic, but particularly with all the the historical uh, marginalization that you face and contemporary marginalization that you face as a black woman, mm -hmm. it does mean that you have um, extra responsibilities outside of yourself. And sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't come intentionally is something that just comes unintended you know where, where you feel oh now I have to put my effort 10 times in order for my voice to be heard you see because the, 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 that's the space that sometimes we find ourselves in so yeah yeah I think what would be important to highlight is the hub's intentionality to center um, not only the voices uh, of of you know women who are marginalized in at the grassroots, but of women who are uh, have marginalized identities within at the academic space. I think the hub's yeah. work has been very intentional to center 
um, and to give um, space to academics like myself, for an example. Mm. Um, mm. And I think without that sort of um, coming into the hub, without that opportunity, I don't know if I would have pursued a PhD or pursued the academic space in general. Um, it's it's sort of the, the path is already set for young graduates in South Africa in particular that um, at best you have a master's degree um, you're lucky if you had funding to pursue that and to pursue your field work but also in 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 a context that's outside of the African region I think as we have spent uh, time in Strathclyde I mean for me that was incredible to watch <laughs> that was incredible to watch and inspired me to to also pursue similar opportunities um and speaking to your second question about you know the emerging themes of of women and i think Butler's work that centers the role of women in the in ocean governance and um, management of resources in particular it became very evident quickly that the context of ocean dependent communities along the south african coastline um, there are issues, there are broad issues of injustices and um, exclusion historically that have been highlighted by academics from the University of Cape Town, academics from Rhodes University and so on. But there are particular elements of um, marginalized, marginal, within those marginalized groups, of course, women who are um, particularly sidelined because of um, social constructs about the role of women in societies, especially conservative um, rural societies in particular. So my research really um, highlights at this point the sort of structural elements that inhibit women from participating in democratic processes regarding ocean governance, such as stakeholder engagement processes. Um, whereas that particular issue in South Africa is already raised um, substantially the lack of just uh, consultations during environmental impact assessments along the ocean that propose extractive industries such as oil and gas and the problematic nature thereof. But I think it is important to highlight that within these already um, historically marginalized groups, there are women uh, who partake in domestic work that is seen as unimportant and uh, invisible labor, if you will, um, that are not necessarily intentionally included in these decision-making processes. And I think we need to really um, highlight that. Mm. Thank you for discussing this, Apiwe. I mean, hearing this, it is even more amazing to anticipate your visit to us over in Scotland uh, for your scholarship. Um, because, yeah, we can't wait to welcome you and see you pursue your research further. Um, Speaking of your research and what you've just shared with us, I'd like you to ask you both uh, about your trajectories into this line of work. Yes, thank you, Melissa, and thank you. It's such a great pleasure to listen to Akiwa speaking because it's like my other mirror. When I, I hear you speaking, it's like I'm listening to myself speaking. But coming to your question anyway, I just want to share a bit about what brought me here. How did I get here? Um, I think if you are a scholar activist, no matter where you are, you always find yourself with uh, similar people. So before One Ocean Hub, I was doing similar work with farmers, right? But farmers in inland, in, in various parts of the country, 
yeah, it was quite interesting. And this is the work that brought me to Rhodes University to uh, register for my PhD. So I came to the hub because Dylan and others had just started setting up the hub and they needed more people to work. And yeah, it was fitting so well with what I was interested in. So this is how I ended up in the hub. Though my work previously was fo focusing on the women who were farmers uh, and the most generally marginalized farmers, when I came into the space, it was the same space, but now with a different focus, focusing on the coastal uh, fishers and also including women and children. And when we all went into COVID, there was no work. So everything just came to a standstill. Yet we had so much work to begin and some relationships were just starting. So we came up with this WhatsApp group. Since they can't go to the ocean because of COVID, they feel and wish they could do a project like home gardening or a project, a project like sewing, which they can easily do within the home because we understand that the ocean work is seasonal, you see? So when the season is off, what is it that the women are doing? So it was really filling much of the, the gaps. So as they stitched and sewn the work and doing sewing, uh, there's this interesting work called creative work uh, whereby you interview women when they are working and you work together. So as they saw, as I help them cut materials, as we do this, we we, we get, I get to interview them. I get to talk to them. Naturally, the environment, the environment becomes so natural. So, so many stories came and one of the major stories that came, it was about the sea, the, the struggles they were facing in seaweed, seaweed harvesting. So yeah, so I, I just wanted to bring in to say the creative work that I've, I'm learning from others and that others have shared with me, it has actually helped a lot. And the way how the One Ocean Hub was set and starting in 2019 and actually coming to really hands-on in 2020, facing COVID and this is when the work began, but also beginning facing with challenges. This is how I became part of the hub. Bukhle, yeah, I mean, I'm super excited to chat to you further about your project uh, on the Grandmothers of the Sea and, and that entire story um, of this exploitative and gravely underpaid labor, this invisibilizing of women community who are harvesting these seaweeds for big international cosmetic companies and of injustices that they face uh, in this uh, arrangement. I just want to bring in Apiwe for a second uh, and to ask you, Apiwe, to speak a little bit to some of these themes that we've just opened. Uh, so I wanted to, to ask a question of two about your PhD project um, and your research, because your research deals with challenges arising from lack of inclusion in decision-making processes um, when it comes to ocean and its resources, and specifically the impact of prioritization of neoliberal ocean initiatives in South Africa. Amongst other forms of inequality, uh, gender and ocean seems to be an emerging theme of this work, yes, uh, that you're passionate about. And yeah, just like Buchle was telling us about a minute ago, um, and then last sum summer as well, um, you spoke to us about it at the Gender and the Ocean workshop that we had here at Strathclyde. Um, you presented a paper on the gender agenda and the blue economy. Um, and your presentation was an understanding of the implications of blue economy growth in women traditional livelihoods in South African coasts. So if you could tell us a little bit uh, more about your PhD um, and yeah, and then about that paper that you gave us, um, 
yeah, just tying into what Buchler told us uh, just now. Thank you. I think that was, you worded that question so beautifully. I can speak very um, sort of loosely uh, about my, my work in that sense that it does highlight the need for not only an inclusion of the voices of local people who have lived experience uh, of the environment, the ocean environment, but also the, an acknowledgement of themes that are perhaps um, intangible and value systems that are indigenous, um, that are not often prioritized in um, decision-making processes about the ocean. Um, and in South Africa, it was it's a particularly interesting case because of a sort of post-COVID-19 um, economic um, initiative that that is sort of seen as a way to revitalize the economy. Um, we see a pickup uh, of, you know, in, in these traditional forms of development that we, we know as extractives as the way to sort of stabilize and revitalize our national economy. However, because of South Africa's historical uh, marginalization and the context of uh, dispossession, dispossession in South Africa, we know that those resources, although those resources that can stem from such uh, traditional ideas of development will not be distributed equally. And so the power dynamics of, of that in the ocean environment are really what my PhD work is, is, is interested in. And so, oh, as I, I sort of slightly forgot the second part to the question, but um, my research, the, the, the paper that we presented in, in, in Stratclyde earlier this year really was inspired by not only this historical context that I mentioned, right? This acknowledging um, the, that South African, particularly rural coastal communities have um, experienced a major dispossession of land and of resources due to uh, colonial regimes and apartheid regimes. Um, which influence what equal stakeholder engagement or fair stakeholder engagement looks like uh, within processes such as the environmental impact assessment or processes that have to do with making any kind of decisions in ocean governance, including conservation. And so this, this paper really sought to highlight the fact that there are those inequalities that we need to acknowledge because of the historical context, but also the role of women that is often being marginalized within the democratic dispensation, understanding that, yes, there are these um, beautiful uh, progressive uh, laws in South Africa that speak to inclusion, but on the ground we see that people are often marginalized whose voices and experiences are marginalized from decision-making processes. In the ocean uh, space in particular, are rural women who are muscle harvesters who work with um, sugarcane forests along the ocean, uh, or, or coastal forests rather, and who are not intentionally included in, in these processes. And I think that's a huge injustice. Mm. Thank you, Piwa, for this beautiful, comprehensive answer. And yeah, I would just like you to, if you can, uh, expand just a little bit more on the notion of blue economies. Um, okay, so in answering, answering this particular question, um, it's an academic question, right? Um, so I'd have to, be, I want to be very responsible with how I respond to questions of the blue economy. Um, and also um, speaking about gender in particular, but 
uh, just roughly, I would say the blue economy is, is sort of uh, a concept that is within the umbrella of sustainable development. And I think sustainable development is a buzzword that we've heard within the sort of environmental sciences or um, across, across disciplines. I think um, you both will agree um, post its inception. And I think the blue economy in particular, along with similar concepts like the green economy, are sort of, um, the, the I guess, the child of sustainable development and are seen as the, the very practical initiatives or the practical ways that we can achieve sustainability um, within, within our lifetime. And by that, I mean the, the development, uh, the economic development that does not compromise human needs and societal needs more broadly. The blue economy in particular seeks to carry forward this initiative or this idea of sustainability within the ocean environment. So it's defined pretty similarly in that it's an initiative that seeks to realize um, economic development goals without compromising the the, the, our goals to conserve uh, the ocean environment and the needs of society more broadly. And so the contention of it that is quite clear comes from this idea of trying to realize these very contentious goals that often have been conflicting and impossible to marry within the, the context or the lens rather of perceiving development in a very narrow, once again, neoliberal perspective, because development does not necessarily mean economic expansion. And I think for a long time, economic growth has been used as a proxy to development, which I think is highly problematized in literature. And I think in that South African uh, context in particular, it is um, clear that from, you know, drawing from uh, literature from other thinkers, we can see that our country could do much better with more progressive frames of what development means, development that centers well-being, development that centers um, livelihoods, development that centers access to education, access to healthcare, development really that is beyond gross domestic product and really thinking about what that means beyond the GDP. And I think our country in particular has really been too committed to the idea that development means an increase in, in GDP. And I think um, thinking differently about that um, aligning ourselves very closely with commitments that we've made internationally, such as the uh, 2030 United Nations um, Agenda, Agenda 2030 rather. And I think um, seeing the discourse internationally also shift very intentionally towards what development looks like outside of these economic indicators. I think South Africa aligning itself in that sense would be would create a, a very progressive environment where um, there won't be a sort of prioritization of hoarding resources, but rather of equal access to um, a decent standard of living, including you know the progression of um, women's rights and the recognition of the role women play in society, not only um, outside of the home but within the homes as well speaking to the recognition of what invisible labor actually means and how women can be recognized and compensated for this work. Mm, yeah, thank you, Apiwe. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. From greenwashing to bluewashing, it is a global problem of neoliberal capitalism. 
I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and you gave me an amazing segue into the question that I have for Buchle to expand on and uh, to tell us a little bit more uh, what you opened up, Buchle, just a minute ago about your two projects. Uh, the one that started uh, during lockdown, where you were working on the livelihood extensions uh, and the idea of the project with sewing uh, with the coastal women. And yeah, the project emerged, if I'm not mistaken, in this organic way, first through WhatsApp groups and through telephone interviews. Um, yeah, and these were the women from fishing communities, right? And you were in the South Africa level five lockdown, which was quite strict. And then from these conversations, as you said, from these sewing groups sitting around together, you identified the subject of your most recent research project, which is the Grandmothers of the Sea, protecting the women's right uh, to arts and fair benefit sharing from seaweed har harvesting in the face of climate change. Yeah, so like there's this, this emerging topic of climate change as well. So if you could tell us more about the seaweed research project and about these women and their labor and their particular predicament and the ways, yeah, you guys came together to work together on this. Okay, so the, the so the women invited me uh, to come and experience the seaweed harvesting in their own context and how they are exploited. But remember also that was coming from other conversations where I held with them through the grandmothers of the sea where they expressed strongly that they don't take part in any decision making at all. Hence, they are the custodians of the ocean because of who they are and where they are allocated within the ocean and how for many generations they've looked after the ocean and hence they remain, their voices remain unheard. So yeah, so that conversation led to another way they said, you need to come and see how we are exploited in the seaweed harvesting. And now I started thinking more about seaweed harvesting and to realize that to have a seaweed in South Africa is uh, actually managed under Marine Resource Living Act where it's under the Department of Forestry, quality death, it's actually regulated. It's not anyone who can just go to the ocean to just have a seaweed. And already that is problematic because it means the rights are being held by uh, a certain a certain individuals to say because yeah if it's commercial it's not everybody who is commercial so this is some of the things I learned when I was doing the the the, the research that okay so in order to have a seaweed you need to have a permit and who holds the permit only to learn again that is is offered to okay in this context is held by the big companies and these companies. They will not actually even go directly to the women on the ground. They subcontract a contractor who hires the women. So you can see that there's that gap again. So the person now in this case is the one who is subcontracted and that's the one that engages the women. And also when she engages the women, she does not have any contracts in place, uh, things remain at a gentleman's level where she brings a truck within the village she packs it in a strategic central point because the women are so desperate they will jump into that truck 
they know that truck is there to pick them up. It takes them to different locations within the ocean where they are dropped at a certain time. And the best time for them to do this kind of work is as early as 4 a.m. And imagine 4 a.m. is very early. And why 4 a.m.? They are saying the tide is quiet, it's low at that time. We must also remember that this part of the world, we have such high tides, such that when the tide is very high, there's no work that you can do. And also it becomes very dangerous. So it's preferred to do that in the morning. So they will be taken to various locations and the conditions are appalling. Thank you so much for speaking so eloquently on this. Because, yeah, you hear mentioned, first of all, mm, it, is in, it is enraging and heart-tearing what you're talking about. And it is definitely not exception, though it's a place and space-specific story. It does speak to a global problem, doesn't it? And yeah, I mean, we were talking we were, we were talking about politics of it all and the economics of it all. But what actually struck me in this story is, is their bodies, the very painful bond uh, with the ocean that's been made painful by these international cosmetic companies. Um, and yeah, like... Oh, the connection of these women with the ocean, which is their home, their coast, made painful in their hands, in their legs, in their necks, in their shoulders. Because, yeah, they take these huge heavy loads of wet seaweed that dries up by the time they walk the distance between the coast and the trucks that they load the harvested seaweed. Yeah, and then uh, their wages depend on the weight of the harvested seaweed, right? So the quote-unquote value of that commodity literally shrinks 10 times, it's 10 times less, it's 10 times smaller by the time they actually bring it to the, the capitalist. Um, yeah, and I think it's the most painful manifestation of this, of this injustice that your research uh, cast lights on. Yeah, on this grave injustice. I visited them and I went there to experience it physically where they were there in the ocean as early as 5 a.m. And also I was there already also is that early and the rocks are slippery. The tide as much as they call it low for me, it will still be very high. And yeah, so they have to pick using their hands. Some of them, their fingers are now uh, shaped because they've been doing this not for a few years, for many years. There's someone who has done it for almost 50 years, that almost five decades. And you can imagine doing it directly with your bare hands. So their hands, some of them are more like crooked, disabled. Uh, and also there are so many things that happen within the ocean, like many of them have fallen, slipped and fell along the rocks and either broken a hand or a leg without any compensation because there's no agreement or any arrangement which is in place. And also coming to the wages, I would want to use not even pay, but a term wage. The wages also are very, very, very low um, because when you harvest the seaweed, when it's wet, it's wet. is so much when it's wet and when it's dry, it loses that weight almost 10 times. So let's say you have 10 kg of wet seaweed. When it's dry, it will just give you one kg. And that's where, where again, I think the unjust is experienced because when it's, 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 
is wet, they have to carry it on their hands, walk around the beach, which is already a difficult thing to do, and go and load it into the truck. And they take it to their homesteads where they are yet to dry. And when it's dry, that's when they take it to the factories and that's when it's weighed. And again, there's no machine to test it to say, okay, we feel it now is dry enough for you to sell it. It's me as someone looking at it to say, mm, I think, yes, it's dry, but I think it's still moist. So instead of me paying you a full amount for your full kg, I think I'll give you at least 80% of the equivalent money for the kg. So again, which is still like not nice. So I followed up all that chain uh, when they went to harvest in the ocean. I experienced that. I followed it up to their homes. I experienced that. I also managed even to have a glimpse on there, which is like the payslip where now, again, when you look at it, why? because you, you get to ask questions like, but if this is so unfair, why are you then having this same person for so many years? They will tell you that there are no, there's no other work that we know because these are coastal communities and the work is, uh, it's either you are fishing or you are collecting mussels or you are doing seaweed. So it's, there isn't much farming because the conditions are not so good for agriculture production, but it favors all the marine kind of work that is within the community. So that's the only work that they know. So they will tell you that we can't even come out of this arrangement as much as we know that it's just unfair because there are not a, no any other opportunities. And indeed, it's like that. So I looked at the wages, then the wage slip, it doesn't bear any company name. It's just this slip, which is written the name of the person, the cages that the person sold that month, and the amount that it was sold for. And then there's a deduction. Again, the deduction is for what they tell me is that when they go to work, because they, they will be hungry, they need meals, they need this, then they get a small loan from the subcontractor. And this loan now is deducted uh, on that day when the wages are supposed to be paid. And sometimes there are others who get zero, zero. You remain owing that person. So you are always tied to this person. This is when I got to understand the loan sharks. What is a loan shark? A loan seaweed. <laughs> so yeah, it, it evolves around. It's, it's really so painful. And you find that, okay, so now all the money she raised, she has paid back the loan, but she still needs more money. Then she has to borrow again. She has to take another loan. So that cycle continues for many years. It still continues as I speak and it has not ended and it will never end. And I tried to say, okay, what is the hope for your children? They're all hoping that their children will not go through what they are going through. And they speak about being free and they're not free. Uh, so these are some of the things when we're looking at uh, blue economy, when we're looking at the work that has to be done because the blue economy evolves around livelihoods, um, it evolves around sustainability, but sometimes sustainability is not sustainable. You see, that's that's all I can share about the, the grandmother the, about the seaweed harvesters. I, I wanted Tell to me. add something I, I didn't uh add there because 
when you look at climate change, I just want to link all this work to climate change. When we look at resilience, when we're looking, we're talking about a community that is resilient. In this case, it's actually not contributing to resilience because it's actually making them more vulnerable. I want to highlight the situation where when they are taken out, because there are two ways of harvesting seaweed which they are facing. They have daily trips where they are taken on a daily, dropped on the beach and taken back home in the evenings. There's another one where they are same group of people where they are taking to areas which are further from where they live. Like then when they're in these sites, they have to camp. This is mainly where borrowing and learning of money usually comes in because while they are away from home, they need food, they need shelter, and they have to make shift houses using plastic and all. But then the children who they are looking after remain uh, without any guardians, so which is really making the adaptation to climate change even more difficult. And they also, you know, like when you come from uh, villages, they are, we have traditional norms, you know, like where it's known the duties that are mainly for women, mainly for men are known. And seaweed harvesting has been known as one of those norms which are done by women within the community. But because of climate change, which is making the adaptation so difficult, you'll find that even men have joined in to try and also have a seaweed and sell. And then now they're speaking, the women are talking about uh, the challenges that is faced now because there's more of like scramble for seaweed harvesting in such a way that uh, for it to be sustainable. And it has other uses other than it being used for other purposes within the factories. It has other uses like uh, marine habitat, marine, it can act as a habit, as a food for other marine resources. And those fish species which are relying on it are no longer found within there because it's becoming scarce, which actually explains why men are also failing to fish and now are resorting to harvesting the seaweed, which can still be there. So the women now are saying this has a huge impact in terms of sustainability, in terms of conserving seaweed if this continues. And this will erode the adaptability, you know, like to adapt to things like climate change in terms of food, in terms of, yeah, everything, because it's being worsened. So this is the knowledge that they have and that they bring with them to say, look, we are the custodians of the ocean, we are the ones who are doing this and we know the impacts of over harvesting a resource. So I thought I would just highlight this just from their perspective, yes. Fantastic, and I'm really, really glad that you uh, mentioned this because uh, that they are custodians of the ocean and that they are carriers and they are holders of the in intergenerational and very uh, sort of spatially em embedded and embodied knowledge um, and wisdom. Um, and um, I want to ask you about how your research not only cast light on those issues and problems, but also uh, to mention the notion that um, the way that the research normally goes is that, it, it, or normally it's like what we at the hub are trying to kick back against is that uh, knowledge can often be uh, extractive, where a researcher goes um, 
collects uh, testimonies or collects interviews and knowledge from the local communities um, and then leaves um, benefits from it in their own career or in their own uh, field of research, but gives nothing in return and actually um, doesn't, um, doesn't do anything to alleviate the predicament of the community, such as this one that you, that you now described, Buchle. And I was wondering yes. uh, if you could tell us, because your, your research is uh, in its uh, nature and in its, uh, uh, in its structure quite different to this. <laughs> uh, and we are yes. proud to support you uh, uh, for this reason, among many others. But tell us more yes. about that aspect of it, please. Others would call it an interventionist kind of research. Others would call it an action research. Others would call it, but mainly, what are you going to do? My question is, okay, I've listened, heard, and seen, then what? Do I leave it like that? Publish a paper, get an award, get as many publications as I can. What does it mean to the community? So in this case, together with the women, we want to see justice. We want to see intervention. For example, let me just bring in the issue of the sewing machines. So when the women came forward to say, these are the challenges we are facing, we're no longer going this, but we feel what would work for us is to sew. Then we all went out to look for the sewing machines and one ocean up managed and we brought the sewing machines to the women. And the women from the sewing machines, they've developed other interesting projects. They are now having even a cooking. Um, they use the money which they got from sewing to start another project, which is supporting another project. So these projects are interlinked. For example, now they are sewing and they are doing catering within their community and catering for workshops, which many NGOs bring to the to the villages. And it's just this group of women that I'm working, I'm talking about. So to me, that's empowerment. To me, that's intervention to work with women for them to reach to that extent. So what therefore are we doing about the seaweed harvesters? So the seaweed harvesters is, is, is not work and they also understand which will just taken overnight, but it's the work which needs a lot of engagement, a lot of conversations around policymakers mainly because the policy that is there sometimes is what creates what is on the ground. So, um, a lot of work is now around holding a round table where we're all talking together. What is it that works better for the women and what is it that the women wants? For example, there is a local cooperative within the woman which the government has given the rights for them to harvest seaweed. And what are we saying about it? If this company is, if this cooperative is supported to an extent that is capacitated. The women feel that they can do things for themselves. They can actually do away with a subcontractor and directly deal with the seaweed harvesting. But that takes a lot of time, a lot of engagement, a lot of conservation in the face, in the sense that the department which is responsible for issuing permits, it has to be engaged. And this conversation has been ongoing since we came across with this injustice. That way is the permit for the cooperative so that these women, they start to have a seaweed. So yeah, it's, it's ongoing. I, and I thought I would just highlight this to say, yes, 
it's, it's difficult conversations that are there. Unfortunate projects come with a, a time frame. So this is one project which I would really love to continue working with. And if there are any other partners who still want to come through, it, I, I'm happy. For example, when I came from Stratlight, we collaborated with the drama department, as I had said. So the students have taken up this project also just to try and engage with the policymakers and is continuing in a smaller way. It's not all that big as it would have been through One Ocean Hub, but looking at the hub now also uh, being the synthesis here uh, and this work is only beginning. So yeah, so my play out there is to say if there's anyone willing to collaborate on this year we are <laughs> i would love to <laughs> i would love to i would like to for one <laughs> but also you would have i think people queuing uh, around the block because it just is such a unique and fantastic thing so thank you both very much thank you so thank much you. thank you so much Sarah.